Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Yaakov Yaga, for those of you who do not know me, and I'm uh, delighted to present our speaker today, Professor uh, Larissa Remenik, who is the uh, head of the Sociology and Anthropology Department at Barlan University. She's also obviously a professor at the, the department. Um, Professor Remenik's uh, research focuses on immigration and migrant integration, cross-cultural relations, family, gender, and health challenges that uh, immigration entails. She has published five books and uh, a century of articles and book chapters, specifically on the issues of Russian Jewish uh, migrants and global diaspora. And the title of her talk today is The Israeli Diaspora in Berlin, Back to Being Jewish. Larissa, thank With you a so question much. mark. With a question mark. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yes. Hello. So I have to be talking to the sound machine. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm actually more comfortable standing. May I? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm not not tall enough to be sitting. You won't see me. And so good afternoon. I'm happy to be here. My visit was under question until the very last moment because of the travel disruptions and you know cancellations and delays, but I'm here, thank God, and in one piece too, which is important. So um, I'm going to talk about the issue that uh, was a subject of my uh, research on my last sabbatical five years ago when I went to Berlin to study uh, what's going on with the then new Israeli Hebrew speaking community that emerged there over those years. Okay? And back then it was a very big shock both to Israeli uh, establishment and the policymakers and the wide public. What the hell were those young Israelis doing in the former capital of the Third Reich? And it was a big shock on the, on the receiving side in the capital of the Third Reich. They were very surprised to see so many Hebrew-speaking Israelis in the streets of Berlin over a very short period of time. The influx happened pretty much after 2010. So as a sociologist and social anthropologist, I was curious to see what attracts them uh, to, to that place, how do they feel there, how the encounter between them and the German society happens, if at all. And uh, this is what I'm going to talk about today. I, I think that I have like 45 minutes, something like that, for the presentation. And you are welcome to ask uh, questions of clarification as we go. And then we'll leave the discussion to the end. The only thing I would need is a glass of water. Can you arrange for that? Yeah? OK, thank you. Um, so you see a couple of uh, pictures to to set the tone of this discussion, uh, it's, uh, one represents a typical uh, street graffiti in Berlin, which is about boycotting Israel. And my visit happened to happen right after the big Gaza Wolf, uh, 2014, right? when the anti-Israeli campaigning and street events uh, were on their peak. And the other is the pro-Israeli. The um, one of the holidays, probably the Independence Day, the local Jewish community established the light uh, performance, um, putting the, the main symbol of the Israeli state on the Brandenburg Gate, which is, of course, a very symbolic place in, in Berlin. So it's all very controversial, as you can guess from that. 
this is one of the uh, snapshots of a publication in Haaretz, our uh, progressive left-wing daily, uh, that is uh, asking all those questions about Israeli immigration slowing down despite fears of Berlin Aliyah, so-called Aliyah is, of course, immigration to Israel. So it's an ironic <coughs> pun of Berlin Aliyah. There can't be such a thing. Um, and uh, the questions that the journalists are asking, whether it's slowing down, what's happening to those who are there, will they return? So it's just, uh, the issue was very much in the spotlight in those days. Um, let's start from, from a brief background on uh, what are Israelis doing in, in Berlin? How did they get there? Thank you very much. Um, actually, the history of relations between the Jewish people and, and the German nation and the German capital, of course, is very, very complex and twisted and burdened with the tragedy of the Holocaust that happened just one generation ago. So basically, um, for the initial post-war decades, there were no Jews in Berlin. There were very, very small remnants of the Jewish community, some of the displaced persons who remained in Germany or returned to Germany after the war. And, and some uh, immigrants to Palestine slash Israel who left on the eve of the Second World War, the refugees from the Nazi regime in the 30s, who wanted to go back for some reasons, right? Because the German Jews were so-called Yekim, we call them Yekim, because they wear jackets. And nobody else but the German Jews wear jackets in Israel, so they are Yekim. Some of them wanted to go back to, you know, to the heart of the European culture, as they say, to, be, to, to, to live in Germany again. But we're speaking about a couple of thousand of people, so it was very small presence of uh, former Israelis in Berlin. And then the second wave appears in Berlin with the disruption of the 90s when the Berlin Wall falls down and the two Germanies start the merger that took a few years. And this was a period of huge opportunity, particularly economic opportunity and adventure. The country was tenuous and changing and uh, there were many opportunities for business, particularly with real estate that was very cheap. So many Israelis found themselves there. Not many, we're speaking about couple of dozen maybe, but, but there was some presence, you know. <coughs> and so the way we're talking about the, this major influx, again in relative terms, again we're not speaking about any mass event, but a more um, visible presence of Israelis uh, in Berlin starts around 2010, um, which reflects the third generation of the Holocaust survivors many of them getting, by that time, uh, German passports or other European passports. There is an event uh, that we are still trying to explain in Israel, this um, fashion or passion, I don't know, of young Israelis to try and get European citizenship via their grandparents. Because many European nations have citizen citizenship laws by ancestry, and so the, when their grandparents were forcibly evacuated from Europe during the war, their, their children and grandchildren can get back, particularly German, Polish, and Romanian passports. And all of them are members of the European Union, so once you have any European passport, you can travel and study and have social rights in Europe, regardless of what's your passport. 
So uh, it is estimated that about 150,000 Israelis have got European Union passports recently. And there's very interesting sociological research um, by Itzhak Harpaz, who is trying to understand, you know, to figure out why they do that and what does it mean for them. For most, it's just the insurance policy. They don't use it really, but some of them do. And so some of those who went to Germany after 2010 have European passports, which makes it much easier for them, of course. And, um, but the uh, push factor uh, that was uh, probably very central uh, in um, starting this emigration wave was the failed uh, social protests of 2011. Those of you who are plugged in to some extent what's going on in Israel may have heard that um, nine years ago by now we had this big wave of national, mainly located in, in Greater Tel Aviv, but also in other cities, protests by young Israelis pretty much against the high living costs and the uh, social injustices um, that is known by the name, by the Hebrew name Parashat Milki. Milki is a, mil is a dairy uh, dessert that is like 10 times cheaper in Germany than, than in Israel. And so it's, it symbolizes huge gap in the cost of living in Israel vis-a-vis -vis any European country, particularly East German cities, because Berlin is an Eastern city. So it's, uh, it's uh, a symbolic name for those protests that did not uh, achieve a lot of change socially. So there was a lot of frustration after this uh, campaign. Uh, and many Israelis decided that they um, have to look for you know, for their professional and personal prospects elsewhere. And in those years, Berlin seemed like a very attractive option. Um, so um, an estimated 15,000 of Israelis uh, found themselves in uh, um, Berlin, probably about 10,000 in other major German cities, but Berlin is a major attraction. Um, which is a number, uh, you know, that is in flux, and that's an estimate. We don't know, actually, how many Israelis are in Berlin. Um, first of all, because they come and go. It's, uh, for many, it's a sojourn, it's an adventure. They come and stay for some months or years, and then they go elsewhere or go back to Israel. And then, because uh, we don't know the exact numbers, because the German authorities are very reluctant to reveal them. They have them, certainly. Because everyone who lives in Germany for more than two weeks, I think, has to register with their address and get a piece of paper, otherwise they can't get anything, you know. And so they know the numbers, but they would not reveal them. I tried to get them in, in the Berlin Senate and failed. Because the German authorities are very unwilling to publish any official statistics about the Jews of any kind. You know, the numbers and uh, Israelis are perceived as part of the Jews. Um, over those years, uh, particularly in, in 2014, 15, 16, there was a lot of uh, interest in, in this uh, emigre group, both in uh, German and Israeli mass media, television. There were several documentaries, endless um, reports and interviews with those who chose to move to, to Germany. Uh, because, of course, the, um, this event, this um, new migration seemed 
very counterintuitive on both sides, both for the Israeli establishment, um, immigration authorities, government, you know, po policy people, media people. Why, of all places, Berlin? Because historically, it was a taboo for several generations of Israelis, particularly all the Israelis, who are closer to the war and the Holocaust, even to set their foot on the German land, even to buy German products, uh, to speak German. It was a no-no thing. You know, there was a huge disconnect between everything Israeli Jewish and everything German. And then the bridge is being built suddenly, the human bridge, those young people streaming into Berlin. And then the German hosts were also very surprised about, you know, why are they coming? What are they looking for here? Uh, at the same time, the German government set the conditions of relative ease for the Israeli holders of the Israeli passport to set foot in Germany for up to six months. They could get a visa for looking uh, for a job or learning German, and then maybe continuing to study in German universities because, of course, the universities in Germany are free of charge and everyone can study. The only condition is your academic credentials and the command of German. You, you have to, to learn German first because 95% of academic studies in, in Germany are in the German language, of course. So it is quite easy for those who are interested. It was quite easy. I assume that, that now it's a little bit different. They have changed because they've got too many Israelis by now. But back then it was quite easy to come there. Um, so there was a lot of media spotlight on this event, and then there was a quite popular Hebrew book by a sociologist from the Hebrew University by the name of Gad Yair, who published an, an interesting book in Hebrew uh, uh, called Avazelo Praktish, and this is the Love is Not Practical, Impractical, uh, that explores one particular aspect of uh, the Israeli uh, influx into German society, the intimate relationships between Israelis and their German partners. A book that uh, caused a lot of controversy on both sides, but I cannot go into that right now. Um, my own research, what did I do there and what, what were my research questions, what I was looking for. So I was trying to understand, like I said, uh, the mechanism of this Israeli migration, who is moving there, why, when, for how long, etc. Um, driven by the, the concept of migration networks and then saturation point and return, because there are waves, of course, in migration movements. The, in brief, those of you who are familiar with migration research a little bit know that migration network theory is very popular in, in today's uh, migration studies. And it's very intuitive and very simple to understand. It means that people bring each other. There are chain migrations, right? People who are pioneers, they start the resettlement process. They, are, they have it the most difficult because they are the first ones. And then those who continue in their path uh, find that it's much easier, easier to integrate and to, to learn the language and to find employment because they, uh, somebody else has set the foot and uh, built the community. And there are people who speak your own language, etc. So people bring each other, the friends and neighbors and colleagues. Um, and then at, cert at a certain point, uh, there are too many of the people of the same origin that are driven by the same motives, and the ground is saturated or oversaturated. There are no more 
uh, cheap uh, places to rent and there are no more job opportunities because still Berlin is a big city but still it's it's a limited setting for I'll, I'll keep talking about who those Israelis are so they're niches of employment and uh, making a living are quite defined and limited and they get saturated over time and then people have to look for other places to continue their journey or to go back home so those are also the issues that I tried to figure out. Then, of course, the relations between the host and German society and the chances for integration and real tenure in the country. Is it a sojourn, an adventure for most, or are they going to stay there? Transnational lifestyle and continuing connections to Israel, that's quite natural. And my method was a residential ethnography. I just lived there, stayed there. I participated in activities that Israelis are part of, like learning German. I signed up for the German language class and I went to the community events and, you know, the typical hangouts and the synagogues and, and all kinds of uh, places where young Israelis come together in order to find answers to all those questions. So, what uh, did I find uh, in, in this uh, investigation? Um, it's a very scattered scene. When I asked one of my key informants uh, some questions about the Israeli community in Berlin, she said there is no community, there is no such a thing as an Israeli community. There is a setting, a set, a zira. Okay? So, who of you knows some Hebrew? Okay, some of you do. Okay, so yeah, there's, a, there's a difference between kehila and zira. Okay, so Yesh Zira Israeli Berlin and Kila Israeli Berlin. Because there are very few formal organizations or institutions, there are some that are in the beginning, but mainly people know each other by hearsay, by personal contacts, by the events they come together to, etc. Um, and of course, the common ground is the Israeli citizenship and the connection to, to this country and Hebrew as, main, as the, the primary language of communication that they keep speaking because this is who they are. Um, now, of course, the um, organizational um, efforts are being made to build some kind of institutions for the members of this community and the um, internet era makes it much easier because, of course, there are endless Facebook groups and um, in uh, 2013, I think, just before I came, they started Spitz magazine, which uh, was first printed on paper, and now it exists only in the online edition, which is a Hebrew magazine of the Israeli community in Berlin, in Germany, basically, but mostly in Berlin. There is the Hebrew library, Michal Zamir, who opened it in her own home, and there are uh, activities for the children, because some of them also have children. We will uh, later see that the majority are single, but some have families, and so there are uh, groups for, for, for the kids to learn some Hebrew. Uh, Bambini, they are called. Uh, another organization is called uh, Kumzitz, which are kind of Israeli uh, words. Can you translate Kumzitz? I have no translation for that. <laughs> um, there are some art galleries uh, owned by uh, Israeli artists and they stage all kinds of events and activities and poetry evenings and readings and, and whatnot. 
There are cafes that uh, were opened by the Israelis with Israeli and Middle Eastern food, quite many in Berlin, and certainly in the neighborhoods where Israelis live, uh, like Prenzlauer Berg. Who of you have ever been to Berlin and know the names of those communities? Prenzlauer Berg, of course, is very popular. Uh, Kreuzberg has uh, many cafes, so there are hangouts where Israelis can come together and speak Hebrew easily and you know, eat their familiar food, etc. Um, and lately they also started discussion groups on uh, German-Jewish relations that are more academic. They are arranged around the Humboldt University and Free University in Berlin, and they uh, stage debates uh, mostly in Hebrew but also in German as time passes by their command of German becomes better and better, so some events are bilingual or in German. And the ones that I observed were, for example, dedicated to the debate on uh, the circumcision. There was a big controversy in those years, like 14, 13, 14, 15. There was a controversy in the European Union generally, because the European Parliament um, passed several laws that severely limit ritual Jewish, Jewish and Muslim circumcision, any circumcision that's not for medical purposes, the ritual ones, okay? And before that, there was a big controversy about the ritual slaughter, halal and kasher, which are actually quite similar. I mean, not Jews and Muslims, it's a, it's a similar kind of uh, slaughter. So, um, it entailed a lot of turmoil and unease, and of course the religious authorities on both sides, both Muslims and Jews, were involved in those uh, discussions vis-a-vis -vis European governments. Uh, and this is one particular ground where Jews and Muslims living in Europe had this interconfessional common interest and dialogue, okay? because of course it's, uh, those uh, ritual procedures are quite similar. Uh, because Muslims are, Muslim boys also get circumcised at later age, but the circumcision is also an issue for, for the Muslims. Um, yeah, so uh, why are they in Berlin? What do we know about the basic motivations? For many, it's just an adventure and change of life that they seek. So they come after the army service, young boys and girls who completed their compulsory army service uh, for two or three years, and they seek change of life. You know, some of them go for a, a, a big uh, uh, how do we say that, and uh, a big tour in India, or in Chile, or in Peru, and on those long, you know, exotic lands. It's a very traditional thing to do when you complete the army service, to take a big backpack and to go to, to the Far East, or to Latin America, for a period up to a year sometimes, for a very long trip. Usually hiking, and you know, it, usually in the places that are cheap in terms of living costs. So that's a very Israeli thing to do. And some prefer to go to Berlin or to Germany, or to, to stop in Berlin while touring Europe generally, okay? Um, many came, the majority I would say, came from education or professional advancement um, students at different phases, mostly graduate students, doctoral students, postdoctoral students, young scholars 
who got uh, fellowships in, for example, in the Max Planck Society, there's a, a network of uh, uh, research, research institutes in Germany that grant very generous fellowships. Um, some came for investment. There is not a small fraction of uh, people who are in real estate. Because like I said, particularly in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, Berlin was full of investment opportunities. It's, it's gone by now, it's too late, but back then people who were smart enough you know, to catch the moment, they, they made a lot of money on that. Um, the other attraction is of course um, thriving and avant-garde art scene. Very cosmopolitan, urban, milieu vibe and relatively cheap living costs. Like I said, Israel is very expensive. Uh, some of my informants were telling that they could not afford uh, continuing their education in Israel because they couldn't pay uh, the tuition fees and living costs uh, living in the center of Israel. Like so, And they knew that in Berlin they could study for free given they learned the language. So that was one of the motivations for them. Um, some of them have German spouses <coughs> or partners, right? And uh, among those who were um, driven to Germany and <coughs> to Berlin by a personal relationship, there's a very big fraction in my small sample of like 25, 30 interviews that I had, about half were gay couples. So actually, many gay Israelis find that life is much easier in, in Germany, they can get married. If one of them has a German passport or a, any European passport, then by marriage, the other spouse gets the same set of rights, which is very important. So it's the gay life, and of course the gay scene is very rich in, in, in Germany and in Berlin <coughs> in particular. Uh, and like I said, because there's already a critical mass of Israelis that are there. So as we say in Hebrew, chaver mevi chaver. Can people just come driven by their personal networks and uh, they stay for some time? And if they like it, they try you know, to stay for longer and to try to learn German. So uh, that's how it happens. And last <coughs> but not least, it's very much a protest immigration. Yeah. Is it good news? Is Ken Livingston backing? <laughs> <laughs> So what we have here is the crowd that is young, mostly single, and mostly left-wing, and frustrated with the current Israeli political scene <coughs> that's dominated with the right-wing uh, ideology and practice for many, many years has been, like for 10 years, Netanyahu government has been in place. And in a couple of weeks, I, I'm afraid we'll have him again for another couple of years. <laughs> so there's no way of uh, exiting this point. Um, so they they cannot take it anymore, and they're looking for, you know, for better life in a Western democracy. Um, and of course, the living costs and, and labor market, like I said, because many of them are. I, I'm not sure if I put <coughs> this slide or not. Yeah. Okay. So many of them are in in occupations that are very difficult for making a living, generally. So the typical categories of Israeli expats who live in Berlin, they are uh, students in, in, in the language and uh, 
wishing to get accepted to the universities, mostly at graduate level, like I said, postdocs and doctoral students, uh, and a lot, a lot of <coughs> young creative professionals. I would say it's maybe half or more. People who are in all kinds of the soft creative occupations like musicians, cinema people, artists, uh, journalists, translators, all kinds of humanities people, you know, fashion people, designers, whatnot. And of course, it's very hard to make a living and succeed in those lines of work in Israel because it's a very, very small market, very small country. It gets saturated very quickly. So they look for larger pastures and larger scenes of uh, implementing their talents. Um, what makes success, as always, you know, like, like I said, the Israeli scene in Berlin became saturated. So like in, in 2010, 11, there were enough, as they say, gigs for musicians and, you know, stand-upists and, you know, comedians and who not. But by now, there are so many of them that every gig has been taken. So it's not easy to, to progress in what you're doing, even in Berlin, which is a huge city, of course. Um, but also something that I have to mention, it's uh, this particular uh, moment is, uh, Berlin is, is hugely popular with lots of Europeans, young Europeans. It's not only Israelis that came there. It's a constellation of circumstances that brings there lots of Italians and Spanish and Portuguese and Greeks and, you know, all, all over from, you know, the, the Southern Europe and the Mediterranean Europe the area that is uh, quite in trouble economically with very high unemployment rates among young people. So a lot of young Europeans from Southern Europe seek their fortunes in Germany and in Berlin in particular. So there's a lot of competition also, you know, for gigs and for places to live and for cheap rentals, etc., etc. Yeah, gay singles and couples, like I said, it's, it's very common. Entrepreneurs, real estate, clubs, catering, whatever you want. The mean age is around 30, plus minus. And two thirds are single or with partner, but one third are families with children approximately. And I would say that by at large, it's quite similar to the Israeli diaspora in New York City or in London. It's pretty much the same categories of uh, young, mobile, creative class professionals. Okay, this is a very loaded question, of course, and very central question for the study of the relations with the German mainstream. Because they can't spend all their lives just within the Israeli bubble. They have to get out, you know, and to face the German society, the German bureaucracy, which is very, very <coughs> difficult to, to tackle and to deal with. The German neighbors in the building where they live, etc., etc. So um, I try to ask them the questions about how they perceive themselves on the German soil, in the German society, given all the legacies and all the memories and all the family stories that many of them have. Not all of them are of Ashkenazi origin, but I would say that 70 to 80 percent are Ashkenazi Jews, right? So they have the stories of the persecution and the war and the Holocaust in their families. But most of them said that um, they, it, it's not an issue for them. They, they try to disconnect between all those legacies and their current life in Germany. 
they keep saying that it's not the same country, it's not the same generation. Uh, the grandchildren of the perpetrators, the Nazi, you know, uh, Wehrmacht um, is one story and their grandchildren is a different story. <coughs> and then, of course, Germany has um, learned the lesson and uh, <coughs> took the responsibility if one nation ever uh, took a full responsibility for what's happened during the war. It's a German nation, because, like, you know, it never happened, for example, in, in Russia, in the Soviet Union. They never could take any full responsibility for the crimes during Stalin's period, right? But Germany did this very hard historic work of processing their responsibility and their guilt and paying multiple tributes and reparations to every other country. So uh, it's all behind us, it's all in the past, it's no longer relevant, it's Ge Germany is part of Europe. This is another very common theme, is that we're living in Europe. It's not important that this is Germany. And actually, Europe is very much associated with Germany today, because the German state is one of the core main stakes of, of the European Union. It's the largest and the most economically, uh, you know, uh, stable, um, stronghold of the European unity, pretty much. So they, they see themselves as, as coming to Europe, not so much to specific, uh, the specific German context. Um, yeah, so I would say that probably with the exception of a small minority of, well, we're not speaking in statistical terms because it's a qualitative research, of course. Like I said, I had about 30 interviews and many more informal conversations with Israelis who live in, in Germany. Maybe one quarter of those whom I spoke about said that history is very important for them and that they are very much into the Holocaust legacies, that they go to all those museums and sites and memorials and look into the Steppensteiner, you know what is that? Those stones Stoppensteiner. that they, that they put in the, uh, in the streets near the buildings where people were taken from during the war. Um, and, you know, look for Holocaust movies or books. So those who are very much into it is a small minority, but they say that we're here also because of that, because it's important for us to know more about it, to feel as part of that history, to understand what our grandparents came through, and to see how this is changing. So even the fact that they are very much aware of those legacies does not have a negative meaning for them. They find some, you know, positive connection with this uh, storyline. Many try to befriend and date native Germans and to be out of the Israeli circuit. Because of course, for anyone who is Hebrew speaking, the most natural connection would be with others in the Israeli setting, Azirah Israeli, but many make a, 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 a conscious effort to step out of that bubble and to try to, you know, to meet and befriend real Germans and start speaking German as well. Of course, it's many, uh, many times dependent on how successful are they in learning German, because it's not easy. I was like struggling with that myself for like five months, came to the course with other Israelis, exited on the other end with very little German, and many of my uh, classmates, uh, young Israelis, also did not learn much. So, because of course they continue speaking Hebrew most of the time, because they, you know, they live in the buildings <coughs> that are populated by other Israelis, 
and they're brought to certain workplaces and, and, and uh, entertainment venues with other Israelis, and so they keep speaking Hebrew all the time, so they do not progress in, in their journeys. But those who do, they really accrue some German friends and colleagues, and uh, feel much better in Germany, of course. And then in some other workplaces, like research institutes, for example, the Max Planck system, uh, the working language is English, so they don't even need to learn good, good German. But those who do not learn good German very often feel that their stay in Germany is temporary. They're not really there to put the roots in the soil. Um, yeah, some more about the traumatic past. Yeah, here I want to introduce some um, variants into the notion of Israelis in Berlin, because there, there are different stripes of Israelis in Berlin. And uh, we have um, quite many of those who came to Berlin after spending some years in Israel as Russian Soviet immigrants. Okay? Uh, so there are Israelis who, who are sabras, who were born in Israel, and then they went to Germany. And then there are many, I would say, a third to a half of those whom I met were of Russian origin, Russian-speaking Jews, who resettled for the second time in a different country. And they come with a very different legacy of what the Second World War and the uh, Jewish tragedy means for them. Because the narrative of the war and the Holocaust is very different in the Soviet Union vis-a-vis -vis Israel. The Soviet Jews have built a narrative of resistance and heroism. Because, of course, so many Jewish soldiers served in the Red Army. And generally, in the armies of the Allies, there were up to 700,000 Jewish soldiers. No, people are not aware of that. So, uh, and there are about 100 Jews who got the highest um, distinction of honor as the heroes of the Soviet Union for their heroic deeds during, during the war, right? So this is the kind of narrative of the war and suffering, and the Jewish suffering that this, in the Soviet Union, I'm one of them, because of course I'm, I'm Russian myself, I'm Russian Jewish myself, we, we grew up in understanding the war as the story of Jewish heroism. And of course, there is no family in the former Soviet Union uh, citizens of Jewish origin who did not lose uh, their relatives and families during the war. Because of course, fully one half of the six million of the Holocaust victims perished in the Soviet territory. This is also something that, that is not common knowledge, I would say. Close to three million of Jews were extinguished by the Nazis when they occupied the Soviet Union, in, in, including the territories that were assessed to the Soviet Union just before the war, the Baltic Republics, right? And parts of Poland and parts of Transylvania. So there was both the extermination of the Jews and mass uh, campaigns of killing, and the heroism of the Jewish soldiers who came you know, to the empty homes to see what was done to their relatives and their families and who were full of the wish to revenge, and they did. So those two narratives, and of course the Israeli narrative is the one of victimhood. There is much less, 
There is, you know, when you have Yom HaShu'ah Ve'agvura, okay, we have this day of the catastrophe and heroism. But the, the, in the narrative, the story of victimization is much stronger than the one of heroism. And when they speak about heroic deeds, it's the Warsaw Ghetto, um, Merit, Merit Ghetto Varsha, the, the, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, uprising exactly. Uh, and there is very little talk about the, the, the military effort that, that the Jews were doing in this resistance. So there are two narratives. And um, the young Israelis of Russian origin, they have a very different take on Germany and the war and the um, relations between the armies, the Red Army and the, and the fascist army, than the Israelis do. So their take on the, on the places and on the memorial sites is quite different. Um, but like I say in the last uh, sentence, for all three segments of the, um, and the third segment is those who are not Ashkenazi Jews at all. So for them, it's not a part of their family narrative, right? It's just something they learned at school and in the textbooks. Um, but it's a remote history, and it's not something that has a direct effect on their life in Germany. Here are some quotes from the interviews. I came to Germany without any prejudice. Despite all the Holocaust education we got at school, it was never because of my, it was never really emotional for me, perhaps because of my Sephardic Sabra background. It wasn't part of our family narrative. And I never met with any prejudice as an Israeli Jew. On the contrary, most Germans I met as colleagues and bosses were very friendly. I used to have a German girlfriend and we got along very well. I think when you come here without a chip on your shoulder, so to speak, you don't encounter any prejudice. Of course, there are mental and cultural differences to overcome, but then this is always true of immigrants, especially in Europe. And this is Igal, who is a professional <coughs> opera singer and cantor in synagogues and in opera house. Now, another motive that I pursued in this research is the question of whether those immigrants become more Jewish when they step out of the Israeli context. Because, of course, the, every Israeli Jew has this complex interplay between their Israeli identity and their Jewish identity, and they're not the same. So when they exit Israel and come to Europe as a minority, and when they become immigrants, um, this is actually something else that I'm fascinated with as an immigrant who came to Israel in the middle of my life and uh, had it very hard as an immigrant in Israel. It's, uh, it's kind of a bittersweet feeling when you see Israelis themselves as immigrants who struggle with the language, who do not understand social codes, you know, so now they know how it is to be Ole Hadash by Israel, okay? Um, so um, does this change their self-construction, their self-identity as more Jewish rather than Israeli? Are they getting closer to religion? Because of course, I didn't say that, but 95, 98% are secular people. They're not really religious Jews, you know? They never set their foot in a, in a Bet Knesset, in a synagogue in Israel. So what happens when they come to Berlin and become a minority of, uh, overnight? Yes, they do become more interested in the Jewish stuff. Okay? And I, I would say that 
mostly it's not because they are becoming more religious, but because they look for social cohesion in the places that are connected to Judaism and, and to Jewish faith and lifestyle and rituals, which happens to be synagogues and uh, Jewish schools and uh, um, Jewish community centers, like all the venues of Jewish life, those are the places where you come and meet people like yourself. So pretty much I would say that the reasons for those Jewish interests are more social than religious, but nevertheless, they do populate the synagogues of, of, of Berlin. They do go there. And it's very interesting that um, the uh, hubs that are more popular with Israelis are Dafka, as we say in Hebrew, and there is no good translation of this word into English, counterintuitively, are those that are orthodox, those that are related to Chabad, mm -hmm. to the Chabad movement. Okay? There are two Chabad centers in Berlin, one in the west, one in the east. They're both very popular with Israelis, particularly the one in the east, on Alexanderplatz. Um, because the atmosphere there is much more open and friendly, because the Chabadniks are known for their outreach attitude, for their trying to get the Jews back in the fold by all means possible. Their doors are open to everyone. They do not ask any questions. While the reform and um, conservative communities that are also, of course, existent in Germany, this is the motherland of reform Judaism of all places, right? Of course, they, they exist. They are much more closed and inside-oriented, and they do not open their gates to the outsiders who speak other languages. So they're very uh, German-oriented communities. They speak the German language, and people do not feel welcome there. So they come to the Chabad meetings in uh, East and West, because there you have like five or six languages spoken. Any, anything between Russian, French, English, nothing, German is not spoken there. That's the only language you do not hear there, pretty much. A lot of Hebrew, of course. Um, synagogues also become centers for social meeting of parents, particularly families with children. They seek Jewish activities for their kids. They want their kids to be somehow plugged into the Hebrew-speaking milieu, picking up the language, picking up some, you know, ideas about the holidays and, you know, the Israeli conventions and foods and songs and music to keep them in the fold to some extent, at least. This is the effort of the parents, which is not easy. Like we know with any emigration, the parental task of keeping the heritage culture for the children is a very difficult task. It's like swimming against the stream because the kids want always to be local and not to be different from, from the local people, right? They uh, go to the German-speaking schools and they try to switch into German at home, and so the parents must have a big effort to somehow keep them in, in the Israeli community. And synagogues are one of the places where this happens, and of course the other is the, um, the Jewish schools. There are several Jewish schools in Berlin, and uh, several for uh, the, the elementary and uh, middle school and one high school uh, in, uh, in the center of Berlin, which many Israeli families send their kids to um, for many reasons. It, probably they're not the best academically, but they are considered to be more friendly and more soft and more international and cosmopolitan. So they're even willing to compromise on the academic standards to somehow keep their children in, in a more friendly environment.
Um, the relations between the local Jewish community, the Yudashus Gemeinde in uh, Berlin, are very complicated. Israelis are not part of that. They are very much outside of this game. But then the uh, Berlinite Yudashus Gemeinde is a very controversial organization. You know, it's been involved in many, uh, a lot of negative media coverage of all kinds of uh, financial uh, transactions, land speculations, um, real estate events, um, and of course a lot of conflicts around uh, leadership because the, uh, like most Jewish communities in Eastern Germany, they are dominated demographically by the Russian-speaking Jews. And this is something that I had to mention. It's a topic of another lecture that I give about Russian Jews in Germany, Russian Jewish immigration to Germany. But as a result of um, about 15 years of the program that the German government has established, had established, uh, to open the gates for uh, the Jewish uh, immigrants from the former Soviet Union, they received close to a quarter of a million of Russian-speaking Jews in Germany. Many Soviet Jews were willing to go to Germany instead of Israel. And of course, uh, there was a very loud discussion of that as well. Ever since to 2000, 2002, every year more Soviet Jews emigrated to Germany than to Medalia to Israel. Right? Um, and uh, since they came to Germany on the Jewish ticket, they were supposed to become parts of the Jewish community and the Jewish life. And uh, uh, it's, it's a big problem because, of course, 90, 95% of ex-Soviet Jews are secular and have very little connection with religion. So, but anyway, the Gemeinde, the, the, the formal communities are dominated demographically by uh, the Jews of ex-Soviet origin, Russian-speaking Jews. They have fights about having community meetings in German or in Russian, and they prefer the Russian, of course, and not German. And uh, Israeli Jews are completely outside of all those competitions and wars, and you know they were not invited. They are not accepted when they even asked for some kind of a small place to build their library or community center. They were not given any, any help from the community, and so all the connection was stopped back then. So uh, instead, they tried to build their own networks and their own small groups and communities, like the Spitz Journal, for example, magazine that initially was uh, supported by the Chabad, of course, and now it's uh, independent and they raise money by themselves. So the Israeli Jewish life is an autonomous, independent network that has very little to do with the established, established uh, Gemeinde. Some pictures about, you know, the. The Israeli set in Berlin. Upper left corner, this is a Hebrew library in uh, Michal Zamir's home. That, uh, that was just a private initiative of one person who had a very big living room and she established a big Hebrew library. So people started donating books and bringing books from Israel. And there's a big library now that anyone can come and borrow books. Um, the upper corner is uh, the Sababa Cafe in Prenzlauer Berg, very popular neighborhood of former East Berlin. The first uh, Israeli 
food cafe, you see the sign Sababa on the, on the green, uh, la, uh, um, um, on the upper part of the door, uh, with hummus and um, what else is there? Shakshuka, of course, you know, you know what shakshuka is? You know what hummus is? <laughs> okay. Shakshuka is uh, a lot of uh, fried uh, tomatoes, bell peppers, vegetables with many, many eggs within and, and, and spices. Okay, it's a certain kind of omelette, of, uh, Middle Eastern omelette. Uh, in the middle, uh, a gay couple, just one of the many, many gay couples who live there. And uh, uh, this corner, this is a nightlife, one of the modern Laila, a nightclub where young Israelis come to have a good time. And of course, Berlin is very famous for its huge nightlife scene. And people who come from Tel Aviv in particular are very hungry for a great nightlife scene, and they have it in Berlin. And this one is, of course, the other kind of uh, happening. It's uh, the anti-Israeli demonstration, uh, probably connected to the events of the Gaza war, where some Israelis who are very much on the left, this is a minority, but it exists, uh, come to protest together with Palestinians and uh, other Arabs who live in, in Berlin in all kinds of events that have to do with BDS actions or against the war. Okay. Five minutes, okay. Let's see how many. Yeah, I think I'll make it in five minutes. So what factors shape their lifestyle? We're always interested in stratification and comparisons. Basic demographics, of course. I mean, age, sex, preference, gender, they all uh, put them into certain niches of life. Family status, whether they are single or partnered, with kids or without kids. Uh, line of work and level and type of income, whether you have every now and then a musical gig and that's all you have, then you have to live in the cheapest possible place with roommates probably, or you have a fabulous job in a Max Planck Institute and you're, you're well set, you know. Uh, citizenship, if you have any European passport, this makes a huge difference in when you live in Germany because you are, you are entitled to many more social rights in healthcare, in education, in unemployment benefits and everything. And most Israelis do not have European citizenship, so they struggle. Uh, the proficiency in the language and the length of residence, they are related to each other. And of course, the, who you are in terms of your Israeli background, are you Ashkenazi or Mizrahi? Sabra or an immigrant who came from Soviet Union. Um, all of them have very strong ties to Israel. With rare exceptions, their families are still there. So they travel to Israel at every possible occasion to vote in the elections, to the holidays, to family events. And of course, it, uh, it's, it makes it much easier to have this transnational lifestyle when it's just three hours of flight between the countries and when there are so many cheap flights now with EasyJet and Ryanair and you know all, all those companies so you can travel all the time back and forth. Um, most follow the events and keep very much plugged in the Israeli scene, being very critical of the government, um, rejecting occupation and supporting Palestinian causes mostly, but they still cannot completely vacate the Israeli topics and preoccupations from their life. Like one of my interviews said, you can leave Israel, but Israel never leaves you. Mm -hmm. Do you feel at home at Berlin? Another quote. 
Not really. My home is in Erzliya, where I grew up and where my family lives. But in Berlin, I feel well into my element, actually better than at home. Here I am free of any predefined identity labels, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi, left, right. I can rediscover and reshape myself the way I wish. Israeli climate is too tense and politicized. When I go back home, I get tired and edgy rather soon and want to return to Kreuzberg. On raising children here and there, that's almost the last one. <coughs> Israel has an image of child-centered society, but actually services for children are much better in Germany. Kindergartens are less crowded and have more staff. There are many free educational programs and summer camps, let alone child monies that are much higher. And of course it is much safer here for adults and kids alike. We visited parents this summer during Gaza war and our kids were scared by the rocket alarms and the need to rush to a shelter. You don't want to explain to a four-year-old what Kassam or Miklat means. Kassam is a rocket and Miklat is a shelter. Some questions for the future study. How will the complex nexus between Jewishness and Israeliness evolve over time in Germany? What identity will prevail? What choices will these new German Jews make in their social and intimate lives, uh, in their relations within the group, outside the group? How permanent is their stay in Germany? If they live to which destinations? Do they get back home or do they look for other places in Europe or elsewhere? Um, how their relations with homelands evolve over time, if it's former Soviet Union or Israel? And which cultures, languages and ideas they will instill in their old children? Because there's a second generation. And here is my final picture of an Israeli guy who is, it's from the Spitz magazine, from their cover who is trying to read the paper, the Berliner Zeitung, with great difficulty, of course. <laughs> and there is a plate of hummus that stands before him that is out of the frame. It's just, did not get into the picture. And this child is looking at this newspaper and asking his own questions. What is going to be <laughs> with him? <laughs> yeah, so I'm done. Thank you so much.